Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 17. And we're going to do a little bit of review at the beginning, but then we'll get into the heart of the passage today. And the title of today's message is Our Place of Refuge. As you know, the Bible speaks of God being our place of refuge. But what a lot of people don't understand is when you say that, it means that you have to be in the designated area of where that refuge is at that he has designated. So we understand that God is our refuge and he's our fortress and he's our protector, but you have to be in the place where the protection is available. And even in our own personal lives, you will see that obedience is what gets you there. As long as we obey the Lord, that provides a shelter, that provides a protection for us. And it might be simply an attitude adjustment. It might be a certain location that you need to be in. It might be in a certain church location or whatnot. It means a lot of different things. And so the key in understanding your Christian walk is to understand where the place of refuge is for you. Now, what I mean by place of refuge, as you'll see in relation to Israel today, It's not a place where there's no bumps in the road. It just means that there's less issues there, and it's less troublesome. You will have tribulation in this life, but part of our our reason we want to walk the path that God has laid out before us is that path has less trouble on it. There's trouble on it, but there's less trouble. When we decide to rock our own path, we go unprotected, and life gets complicated. It gets very difficult. It becomes a burden sometimes because we're off the path. And so part of understanding what we're going to learn from Israel today is what we're going to apply to ourselves. Where is the place of refuge that God has established for you? What is it? Where is it? Is it an attitude? Is it a belief? Is it, what is it? And so you'll see that in the text as we learn from Israel today from the future. Let's do a little review and we'll talk about understanding what Israel is going through. What we covered last week is a couple things, and this started the chapter and says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. What this is a picture of is, is recapturing Israel's history. The woman with the sun and the moon and the stars is a representation of Israel. It refers to Joseph's dream back in the Old Testament. And her being in labor, she's about to give birth to the Messiah. It is the Jewish people who gave us our Messiah, right? So that's what it's referring to. So the whole topic in chapter 12 is about Israel. Israel is the hot button. That's why when you see the prophecy video that we just looked at, we're all focusing in on what's going on with Israel, with Syria and Russia and Iran and that whole Middle Eastern region. Why that's important? Because the whole issue is about Israel. It's a spiritual issue that we have to come to grips with. Let's go back to the text real quick. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, the great fiery red dragon, obviously that's Satan, having seven heads, ten horns. That's the final form of the Roman government that will be headed up under the Antichrist and seven diadems on his head. So it's giving you a picture of Satan, but also he is saying that he's in control of the final world government, which will be the Roman government that's still in, in existence today. 
the Roman government's broken in two branches, the western side of Western Europe and the eastern side of uh, Eastern Europe are the two legs of Daniel's metallic man in Daniel chapter 2. Again, I don't want to belabor these points because I dealt with this in the previous sermon, but the Roman government is still with us. It would be with us all the way to the end until Messiah destroys it. Nonetheless, that's the final form of the Antichrist beast government. That's why it looked like a beast to John. He said it has the head of a leopard, mouth of a lion, and, and had different parts of the previous empires attached to it. So John just says, it's a beast. Well, it's the Antichrist final, what we call one world government. Now, 10 years ago, or even 15 years ago, when I used to say one world government, people would say, well, that's conspiracy theories. It's not a conspiracy theory anymore. That's all what they're wanting. They're saying this is the final solution to our problems is a one world government. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It's exactly what they're saying is happening. But it is predicted in the Bible as this is what will occur towards the end, a formation of a one world government. Okay, let's go back a little bit to the text. Again, this is all we're still reviewing. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, talking about the fall of Satan and him bringing his angelic host, his fallen angelic host, and he threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, that's the Messiah, as soon as it was born. So we understand that Israel has been attacked, persecuted all her history, and then even when Messiah was born, Satan tried to kill Messiah, obviously through Herod, remember, putting the edict out to Bethlehem and kill all the children under two. And then throughout Messiah's life, Satan was trying to kill him through other people before he could get to the cross. And so it was always an effort to kill Messiah at the wrong time in the wrong manner. And he was unsuccessful at that. But then when Christ even went on the cross, Satan tried to get him off the cross. He didn't want him to die at that time. So what it ended up happening, obviously with the cross, and again, this is review, the cross not only bought our redemption, paid God back for our sin debt. It did much more than that. It was the final judgment to Satan as far as an edict from the bench, if you want to call it that. The gavel had been thrown down, sentenced to the lake of fire, basically. And that sentence will be carried out. So Satan is, is dead man walking, so to speak. He is still loose and able to do his activities. And the final judgment for him hasn't come to fruition, but it will in the future. And so he tried to prevent that and devour a child as soon as it was born. Okay, so it's recounting a lot of this history. Let's continue on. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the rod of iron rule of Jesus when he comes back at the second coming. He will rule as king over the planet Earth. And I talked about that last week. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So it's talking about because his mission was successful, he ascended back and is at now at the right hand of the Father, awaiting to come get us. And then eventually after that, he will come back after seven years of a tribulation and establish his throne on earth, in David's throne, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, right there in Israel. That's why it's the hotbed. And that's why Satan does not want that to happen. Okay. So you got a lot of players here. You got Messiah, you got Israel, and you got Satan. And I talked about last week, this is why Satan has hated Israel from the very outset. Because the issue with Satan is he tried to wipe out Israel so that the Messiah wouldn't come. And he, he got real close to doing it, by the way. But God preserved Israel. And now we're looking at the second coming, and Israel's still in the mix. Why? The second coming is predicated on Israel's acceptance of Messiah. 
He said, you shall not see me again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He told Israel that. Well, that will happen in the future. Israel will come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then Jesus will come to rescue them. Okay, it's a rescue mission. Satan knows this. This is why there has been a satanic attack, especially not only just the last 2,000 years, but since they became a nation again in 1948 and continuing on till today. Anti-Semitism has ramped up. It not only was in the Holocaust, but you're going to see a second Holocaust with the Antichrist that's predicted here in the text. And it gets really bad. And this is why a lot of the Jews are leaving Europe because it's become so anti-Semitic because of the Muslims. And even in America, the last few years have been high, high stats for anti-Semitism going on in America, blaming the Jews for everything. And God is going to call his people back to the country of Israel, the nation of Israel, because that's where it all goes down. Okay. Nonetheless, now we enter. That's the review. If you want to listen to last week's sermons to get more in-depth, you can. That's up online. But now let's start with part two of this and understanding this place of refuge that God has for Israel in the future. In verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Let's stop right there. So now it jumps from the ascension of Messiah, and we're jumping into the future, way into the future, and we've jumped now into the tribulation. And we're dealing with Israel still, same theme, but we've now jumped. It's called a prophetic telescope. It's like having two mountain peaks between. So we went through the valley. Now we're at the next mountain peak, Israel in the tribulation. Okay. So Israel, as you know, is reconstituted as a nation. It will continue as a nation through the tribulation. But as you know, Israel will get into a deal with the Antichrist. He will cut a covenant with them, a strong covenant. It's a seven-year deal. And this covenant will then be broken, and he will then turn on Israel and try to destroy her completely to wipe every Jew off the face of the planet. That's his intent. Because if there's no Jews on the planet, they cannot call for Jesus to come back. And he's trying to play a legal game with God. And so this false Christ, this counterfeit Christ, will do this deal, but then try to wipe them out. So what's happened is that God has now prepared a place for her to hide from the Antichrist because he will do this at the midpoint of the tribulation after three and a half years. And so basically he will persecute Israel for three and a half years before Messiah comes back. And so it's the most intense time for Israel has ever seen in their history. Worse than Pharaoh, worse than Haman, worse than Nazi holocausts. Because all bets are off. He's got to wipe out every Jew on the planet. And that's what he will intend to do. So what God has done is prepared a place for Israel to be protected at that time. It's a place of refuge. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But notice the next phrase, as what's going on on earth, something happens in heaven. Verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, the idea of Michael is important because Michael relates to Israel. Michael is the chief prince of Israel. 
Every country has an angel assigned to it, and probably every country has a demon assigned to it from Satan. Michael is the chief prince of Israel. He protects Israel. That's why he's named in the text. He also is the highest-ranked angel after Satan's fall. He is an archangel. Satan actually was the highest-ranked angel, the most powerful, most beautiful of all the angels. So after his fall, then Michael takes that position as the lead of all the angels. And so what happens is what's happening on the ground is always a correspondence to what's happening in the heavens. Rest assured today, you see Russia, you see the formation of Gog and Iran and Turkey and Syria and all these people locking and loading ready for Israel. Rest assured that what you see on happening on planet Earth, there's stuff happening in the heavenlies. Every time you'll see this in, in passages where there's something's happened to Israel on Earth, there's something happening in heaven. Well, Israel is about to go through their worst period of time in persecution history ever. And at the same time, Satan is doing a, an attack on heaven itself. Now, this is sometimes perplexing to people because they, they, they don't realize that Satan still has access to heaven. If you and I were to die tonight, or if the rapture should happen and we went to heaven, you would actually get to see Satan. You know why? Because he goes there quite frequently. Because he accuses the brethren day and night before God in heaven. So a lot of people are perplexed that Satan still has access to heaven. Yes, he certainly does. Look at Job 1. He went before an audience of God. So he still has access. So even if you and I were in heaven, you would see Satan and even demons have audiences with God. That's got to be kind of unnerving, to say the least, because you'll see in the text that all heaven breaks out in praise once he's cast out, finally. So Satan basically has access to heaven and he has access to earth, our abode. And he goes back and forth, back and forth. So what does he do in heaven? He accuses us. What does he do on earth? Becomes an angel of light and becomes a prowling lion looking for whom he may devour. It's one of those two aspects on earth and the one aspect of the accuser in heaven. Let's return to the text. So this war breaks out, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So basically Satan tries to attack heaven tries to make a run on heaven, and Michael and his angels are successful in throwing him out, and he's cast what we call to earth's abode. And you have to understand in biblical terminology, there are different abodes throughout the Bible. There's basically five abodes. One is God's throne or in heaven, and the new Jerusalem's there. Then you have the atmosphere or space. That abode that encompasses the universe is basically the abode of the demons, the abode of Satan, that's where their abode is. And again, it doesn't mean they, they can't have access to earth, but it's not their real place. Their place is out there in space. Earth is our abode. Obviously, demons and Satan have access to that, so do angels. The other abode is Sheol or Hades. That's inside planet earth, the place of the dead. That's where people go when we say they go to hell, they go to the fourth abode. And then that fourth abode will eventually be destroyed when the new heaven and new earth get created. And then the fifth abode is what's called the lake of fire or Gehenna. So there's basically five abodes. So basically what's happened here after this fight that ensues in, in heaven is Satan is permanently cast out of heaven once and for all and confined, not just to space. He's not, he's not even thrown into space. He's thrown to the earth abode. He's locked in 
to our environment. He can't escape our environment along with his demons that follow him. Let's go back to the text, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So he's finally expelled. He's not going to have an audience with God ever again. This is it. Other than him being judged, he is completely cast to our abode. But that becomes a problem for the earth dwellers. Now, look at the scene in heaven. In verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Basically, the idea, it's already a done deal. Watching Satan get thrown out, it's a done deal. Notice what it calls him. For the accuser of our brethren, when what was he doing in heaven? Who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So you want to know what he is saying before God? He's accusing who? The world? Pagans? Hindus? Muslims? Mormons? Catholics? Jehovah Witnesses? Who is he accusing before God? Believers. Look, in the demonic world, they know who's legit and who isn't. They know who are the fake Christians and who are the real Christians. They don't care about the fake Christians. They don't care about the fake pastors. They already got them wrapped around their finger. It's the believers that he's attacking. It's the believers that he's accusing. Here's a point of application before we move on. What could he possibly be accusing us of before God? Our salvation? What is he accusing us of? He's accusing us of our lack of discipleship. He's accusing us of our lack of integrity, our lack of morality, our lack of living for Christ. He's accusing us before the throne for sanctification issues, not so much salvation issues. Because every believer that gets themselves in the sin becomes an accusation. Every believer that doesn't do what they're supposed to be doing receives an accusation in heaven. How would you and I like to understand and get a, be a fly on the wall in God's court and Satan's sitting there accusing you and me personally before God the Father? That would, that would really upset me that I had given Satan anything, any ammo, to take before God the Father. That should bother everyone that hears that. He's using everything against us. And what is he saying? You should punish them. You should discipline them. They're not confessing it. They're not asking forgiveness. Do something about it. I call on you, the judge of the earth, to do something to them. That's why it's extremely important that Christians confess and ask for forgiveness. Because if you confess your sins, he will do what to you? He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness because the blood of Christ is constantly cleansing us in our sanctification. But the minute you go unconfessed, it becomes an issue in heaven. When you pretend that what you're doing is no big deal, when you pretend that this sin is not that bad, when you pretend that you're living a, or basically a double life, you have one set of life here and then you have your church life. And it's completely diametrically opposed. Don't think for a moment he's not taking that and saying, that Christian's living a double life. You need to do something about him. How long does it happen? What does it say in the text? Day 
and night over and over again until that Christian gets the issue resolved or God has to discipline that Christian. And will God do that? Absolutely, He will discipline. That should terrify every believer to know that's going on in heaven. That freaks me out, that I would give any ammo to Satan to accuse me. That scares me. But that's what the real deal is. Now, they're they're rejoicing in heaven. Let's return to the text, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Notice the three aspects. I want you to note this. Faith, hope, and love. What do you mean? What's the faith? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. These are talking about the tribulation saints in heaven, in context, who have been martyred. Okay, We're there as well, but this context it has to do with the tribulation saints. This is what they're saying. How did the tribulation saints overcome him? Faith. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Faith is what got them cleansed by the blood of the Lamb because they believed in the Messiah, right? And notice the second phrase, and by the word of their testimony. That's the second phrase. That's love. One's faith, then that's love, and I'm going to show you the hope in just a second. The faith of their testimony, what is the testimony? Of them giving their personal testimony like we, we, we talk about? No, 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 no. That's misconstruing of the idea and the concept in the Hebrew mindset. Their testimony has to do with them and their public confession of Messiah during the tribulation. What do you mean? See, it's one thing to believe, and you can believe, and this was happening in the first century, a lot of Jews believed in Messiah, but they simply would not confess Messiah publicly. How do I know this? It says this in... um, in one of the passages in the Gospels, John 12, 42. Let me read this real quick. John 12, 42. Among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Did you catch that? Many believed in him, but refused to publicly confess him because they were afraid of the societal ramifications that it would bring on them. So in the first century, there was a lot of Jewish believers who were secret service Christians. No one knew who they were. They were all secret because they would get cut off. Ah, we're on to something. That's what's happening in the tribulation. If you name the name of Christ and say you're a believer in the Messiah in the tribulation, guess what happens to you? Live and let live? No, you chop your head off. They go right after your head. You're dead. We're talking about martyrs. We're talking about tribulation saints who openly confessed, I'm a believer. Cut my head off. I don't care. They publicly confessed. This is important. There's an application for you and I in this. In your walk with the Lord, you're saved by faith, no doubt about it. But in your sanctification, in your rewards, not salvation, in your sanctification, in your rewards package, 
your right to rule in the millennial kingdom is tied to your public profession of Messiah. This is why you'll see texts in the Gospels from Messiah, and people think this is a salvation issue. It's not. But in the Gospels, he will say, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. That's not a salvation issue. That is a rewards issue because the context was dealing with discipleship. What do you mean? Let me go further. 2 Timothy 2, 12. Paul's talking about enduring persecution because of the public testimony of him and Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, man, I'm in jail because of this, but I'm enduring. And he says, if we endure, notice this, endure what? The persecution that comes from being public with knowing Christ. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. What? The text then points back to the point of reigning. If a Christian goes through their life, and no one really knows they're a Christian other than their immediate family, that people at work don't know they're a Christian, the people in their schools don't know they're a Christian, they keep silent wherever they go. They're like the secret service. You don't know who they are. They're a ghost Christian. That person is denied the ability to rule and reign in the kingdom age. It's taken away from them. Those Christians, though, who publicly profess, I am a Christian, and more than just I am a Christian, but profess the law of the Messiah, the principles of the Messiah, you're going to get a lot of persecution like Paul told Timothy. God bless you for enduring because the reward is you will get to rule in the kingdom because you didn't deny the Messiah. This application is probably one of the most important things in, in our day. We have a lot of people in our culture that are Christians that claim the name of Christ, but refuse to take a stand for any principle in the Bible. How can you be a Christian but deny saying anything against transgenderism, against the homosexual movement, the LGBT movement? How do you stay silent like that? See, that's part of what Jesus talked about. You're denying him when you don't talk about these issues. See, the new trend in church is, well, we just don't want to talk about those issues. We don't want to talk about Marxist infiltration. We don't want to talk about, your, your anti, you know, about Israel and, and because many of them are anti-Israel. We don't want to talk about those issues because they're controversial. No, no, no. They're Scripture. They're Scripture. It's not being too political. It's about me confessing Christ. It's about me telling you this is where the Bible stands. And like me or hate me, but it is what it is. And I'm not going to go away and shut up. You can tell me I'm a hater. You can tell me I'm a racist. You can tell me I'm homophobic. I don't care anymore. I'm going to tell you like it is. And that's how every Christian needs to start becoming in our culture because the sin of silence pervades most of the church. Well, I just don't, I want to be liked. I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be called a racist. I want that promotion at work. Hey, man, you're going to have to pay a price somewhere. 
You can rule in this life all you want by staying silent. But when we get into the next life, into the kingdom age, you're going to be denied before the Father. You're going to be not denied rulership. Man, that's real threats. That ain't empty threats. That's not, well, maybe, I don't know. It's real. You have to take it that seriously because that's what they're doing. And notice this, and they did not love their lives to death. They were willing to die for the Messiah. That's hope. Hope in what? Why are they willing to die? Because they know they're going to be resurrected. They know Messiah promises. If, if they kill you, I'll resurrect you. No big deal. No problem. I'm the God of the universe. Notice how all three elements are there, faith, hope, and love. You see all that? All of that's amazing. That's how they overcame the devil is because of their faith, because of their love, and love for who? Love for Messiah to identify with him publicly, but also love for the world as God loves the world. Ask yourself, if you went to a doctor and you had cancer, and he says, you know what, I don't want to offend you, but here's some aspirin. I hope you feel better, because I don't really want to upset you and tell you what's really going on, but you're littered with cancer. But I don't want to tell you that, because that's going to offend you. So I want to be a nice doctor. I want you to keep coming back to me, and I want you to like me. So I'm just going to say, you know what's all right, dude? You're, just take two aspirin, you're fine. What doctor would you rather have? The doctor that says you're okay, or the doctor says, hey, man, we, this is serious, man. We've got to get to work. You got cancer. We've got to get this out of you. We've got to start treatment right away. What kind of doctor would you want? Which one is more loving? It's the one who's telling you the truth, right? There's where the love is. It's not just love to identify with Messiah, but when you tell people the truth, you're showing love. Those who keep back the truth are doing them a disservice. They're actually showing hate, dislike, by me not telling you your house is on fire. That's a lack of love. It lets you burn up in your house. All that to say is that's how they overcame in the tribulation, and that's how we're to overcome. Let's return to the text. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. We're there. The tribulation saints that have been martyred are there. But woe, or oive, to the inhabitants of the earth. The inhabitants of the earth and of the sea are what's called in technical terms earth dwellers. Earth dwellers. What it means in that technical terms, like 11 times used in Revelation, is these belligerent fools are not coming back. They have crossed the line. They're not coming back. And because of that, God's going to send them a strong delusion so they, they believe the lie of Satan, believe the lie of the Antichrist, that he is God. But nonetheless, the woe is because what's getting ready to happen. For the devil has come down to you. He's locked into this abode, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. You know how much time he, think, he knows he has? Three and a half years. He's got three and a half years to get it all done. Three and a half years to wipe out every Jew on the planet. And he thinks he's going to be successful at it. But God has something else planned for him. Concurrently that's going on in this is a lot of things. Concurrently, just let me take a step back. What's happening right now is the Antichrist has, has risen to power. He's not in full control of everything. There's a war that happens a second world war that happens in the middle of the tribulation. This is Daniel chapter 11, 40 through 45, somewhere in that neighborhood. This is the second world war. Now, 
there's a world war at the beginning of the tribulation. There's a world war in the middle of the tribulation. That's what I'm talking about right now. And then there's a world war called the Campaign of Armageddon at the end. So there's three world wars actually in the tribulation. During the second world war in the tribulation, Antichrist goes to war against the ten kings. And again, I don't want to just have to qualify everything. You have to go back and listen. The ten kings are ten designated rulers that will control the one world government temporarily. But then he arrests control from them, and he takes out three of the kings, and the other seven submit to him. It's in Daniel chapter 11, 40 through 45, that this war happens. And he basically takes the king of the north, the king of the south out, and the king of the east out. He takes those three kings out. In this war, though, Antichrist is killed. He receives a mortal wound to him. It's at this time, though, that his body is laying in state, but then he actually has a counterfeit resurrection. He comes back to life. And because of that, he counterfeits the resurrection. Don't ask me how that happens. Don't ask me well, all this that goes on there. There's a lot of conjecture. But some have conjectured that God gives Satan the power to do this. But it's in Revelation 13, he comes back to life. And because of that, he has this counterfeit resurrection. And then he has a counterfeit second coming. And he starts ruling globally for three and a half years. It's at that time he breaks his covenant with Israel and turns on her and tries to destroy her. It's a big deal. Lots going on on the ground, as you see that's going on in heaven at the same time. Okay, so that being stated, let's go back to the text. Now, when the dragon saw he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So there's where the persecution's coming at the, the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation. At the first half of the tribulation, he's really nice to them. He's their pal. He's their buddy. He's the guy they were waiting for all this time. And by the way, if you look at Israel's rabbis and what they teach, they are completely set up for the Antichrist. Completely set up for him. Everything these rabbis teach are setting Israel up to accept the Antichrist. It's just it's mind-blowing to watch this. They're completely deceived. I think the rabbis are deceived. Nonetheless, let's go back to the text. God's going to help Israel. Jump to Zechariah 14. Once he starts persecuting Israel, it gets bad, and it gets bad really fast. So what Antichrist does is he then, from his headquarters in Babylon, moves and plants himself militarily in the Jezreel Valley, or what we call the Valley of Armageddon. He plants himself there to attack Israel. And a lot of what's happened to Israel is they're now being clumped up in a city called Jerusalem. This is what happens to Jerusalem. The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished or raped. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Let's just leave that up there. Do you notice what's happening Antichrist goes on a full-blown attack. His soldiers are there taking Jewish women and raping them. There's house-to-house fighting. If you understand how Jerusalem is built, there's, there's little pockets and corners and stuff. It's, not, you have to, it's very hard to navigate through Jerusalem, but it starts house-to-house fighting. And uh, the city goes into captivity of the Antichrist, and things get really, really bad there. So here's the deal. Did Jesus warn about this? Did Jesus give a plan of escape? Did he do anything for them? Yes. 
Jump to verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Now, to understand the wings of an eagle, I mean, the tinfoil brigade that's on the YouTube and the Internet and the Area 51 people, don't listen to them on the YouTube. They're crazy, especially when they start delving themselves into prophecy because they simply don't understand it. You'll see many goofballs on YouTube say, oh, uh, Israel was given wings so they can fly away. That's probably referring to the American eagle. So America comes to rescue Israel. It's like, oh, my goodness, how did you get that one? That's this bad exegesis. It's not America. It's not. It's simply understanding where those frames of references come from, which John expects us to know. What are the wings of an eagle? What is that referring to? It refers to the Exodus. It's not the American Air Force that provides a ride for them. I don't know how people get that stuff. The wings of an eagle, God told Israel, I bore you on eagle's wings when I delivered you out of Egypt. What it means is a Hebraic euphemism, which means a successful escape. So God is saying, I'm going to give Israel a successful escape from the Antichrist because I've provided a place of refuge there that will su- support her for 1,260 days or three and a half years. So that she might what? What she, can she do? That she might fly into the wilderness, there's a clue, wilderness, to her place. What place? She's got to get out of Jerusalem. You've got to get out of Dodge. Ah, we have a clue here. It's in the wilderness. Do we have any more clues? Yes, we do. Let me turn to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. This is the private instruction by Jesus to the disciples about what goes on and what signals to run. Then they will deliver you into tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That's anti-Semitism right there. He's talking about Israel. And then many will be offended and betray one another, Jew upon Jew, and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That will happen in Israel. And because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. What will happen is Jews who support the Antichrist will turn in fellow Jews who believe in Messiah. They will stab their own brethren in the back, so to speak, for the Antichrist. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That that salvation is not soteriological. It has to do with a physical salvation of Jesus rescuing them physically from being destroyed by the Antichrist. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's talking about the 144,000 witnessing. Therefore, and here's the clue, when you see what? The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. So this is a warning to the Jews, a survival manual. When you see Antichrist, go into the temple and commit what's called the abomination of desolation, which means he goes in the temple, proclaims himself to be God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then sets up an idol, Revelation 13. You got it. Then you're supposed to do something. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Revelation 12 is saying wilderness. Now it's saying mountains. There's another clue. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Just drop everything you're doing and run because Antichrist is going to kill you. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because kids and babies will slow the mothers down. They'll probably get killed. 
by the armies of Antichrist. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Well, Gentiles wouldn't have a clue what he's talking about, but Jews do. Do you know what happens in Israel today on the Sabbath or in the wintertime? Let me explain this. On the Sabbath, nothing works. Everything is shut down. We saw this in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. If Israel is on the Sabbath, they have no public transportation. There's no cabs. There's nothing to get out of Dodge from. He says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath because you won't have any transportation. You'll have to be running to this location. And he says, don't ha- pray that it doesn't happen in the wintertime. Well, again, us Gentiles in America, we don't understand what that means. But in the Jews' world, they do. And it's still the same though today. In Israel, they don't build bridges over rivers like we do. They build the roads right in the river. Because you know why? They have a rainy season and a dry season. During the rainy season, they just let the, water, the roads just wash out from the water going through the wadis and the rivers. But then by the time of end of April, they're all dried up and you can drive back in those roads again. They don't build bridges. So he says don't go in the wintertime because the wintertime is the rainy season in Israel. You're not going to get your car across the rivers and the wadis. So pray that doesn't happen. That's totally Israeli-centric. That's totally dealing with Israel, as you can see. For then there shall be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until that time, nor, nor ever shall be. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. The idea is no Jew would make it out alive physically. Not soteriologically of eternal life. He's talking about physical life. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Who's the elect? What the Calvinists say who the elect are? No. Anytime you see the word elect, it refers to the nation of Israel. Israel is the elect nation. So he says, for the elect's sake, for Israel's sake, those days will be shortened. Thank God, because if it weren't, every Jew on the planet would be eliminated by Antichrist. So we got a clue. Let me throw in some more clues. Let's add it all up together to find out where this place of refuge is. First thing we want to see. Revelation 12, 6 and 14 talk about it's prepared in advance. It's an adequate place of refuge. Talked about. Let's go to the next one. It's in the wilderness. Let's keep going. In Matthew 24, we just learned that it's in the mountains. And let me add some more. Isaiah 33 talks about it's on high. refers to mountains. It's a place of defense. It's the munitions of rocks. It's easy to defend. It's in Micah 2, 12. The sheep are gathered at Starts naming the place, Basra, the sheepfold in the region of Mount Seir, the Hairy Mountains, which is modern-day Petra, Jordan. Daniel 11 adds a little bit more to this. Jordan will escape the Antichrist domination, so it's logical for the Jews to flee to southern Edom. Isn't that interesting? The Antichrist will, will control the entire planet except little Jordan, which is the very place the Jews are going to go to hide from him, particularly in Petra, Jordan. So here we are. You have now discovered the place of refuge right here. Jerusalem's up here. Dead Sea. Petra is right here. This is Edom. This is where the Edomites were. This is where Esau's descendants, and they created a rock fortress that is in the form of a sheepfold. That's why it's called Basra. Basra means sheepfold. Every sheepfold in the Middle East had a narrow entrance, and then it opened up. That's exactly what this mountain range does. A narrow entrance, and then it forms a barrier 
around it, which is completely defensible. It's amazing. This, by the way, if you're a Jew running from the Antichrist, it's 100 miles. So they're going to have to go out this way, down the Dead Sea, through the Rift Valley, and make their way to Petra. That's why he told, pray you're not pregnant, pray you don't have little kids with you, because you're going to have to run. And if it happens on the Sabbath, there's no public transportation that has taken you 100 miles down to Petra. But here it is. That's where they're going. That's where God will provide. Let me show you some more pictures of Petra so you kind of get an idea of the place. You see how these rocks form a munition, a defensible barrier around them? And then you start seeing these little caves all through the rocks. That's where the Jews are going to hide. This is the entrance to Petra. Can you get a tank? Can you get anything through that? You can only go through camel. And by the way, if you go to Petra, don't ride a camel. I can just tell you that right now. Do not ride a camel. Do you know why? A buddy of mine was over there, and they, 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 you pay you know, X amount of money uh, to ride a camel. And that camel, when he puts on his brakes, and you're not holding on, you'll do a Peter Pan right off the front of that camel. And he said, I was watching, I was sitting down there, and I was watching this old boy ride this camel, and this camel was just going, going, and going, and that camel just stopped. And the old boy just Peter Pan right off the top. And unfortunately, man, the dude came down and hit his teeth on a rock and broke all of his teeth out. And he says, you're in the middle of Petra. There's no hospital here, man. And his, all his teeth were knocked out. <laughs> My advice to you, you go to Petra, don't ride a camel. Okay. But this is the entrance. Look at that. Do you see how defensible from a military standpoint that is? When you only have to defend an entrance that size, you can defend it forever, at least for three and a half years. From the Antichrist army, you see how protected they are? And this is the ancient library of Petra. You've probably seen this on uh, movies and stuff like that. Indiana Jones made his way there as well. You remember? They filmed the, uh, there's a gift store. By the way, there's no Indiana Jones artifacts there because it, it looks like Arab and Muslim garb and stuff like that. And they have little goat heads right here. So I wouldn't want to buy that because that's an idol. But nonetheless, when you go there today, the, you know, they filmed Indiana Jones, the last crusade there. So it's, it's gotten popularized by that. But interesting enough, what makes it popular from a believer standpoint, early believers in the early 19th century and early 20th century knew what you and I are studying. And you know what they did? They buried New Testaments all over Petra. Because they knew the Jews would get there running from the Antichrist, and they wanted to make sure that they gave them the New Testament. So apparently there's New Testaments buried all through these caves in Petra, and perhaps God will help them to find those when they get there as they run from the Antichrist. But anyway, nonetheless, let's, let's keep rolling through this, Sam. And you can see the caves that are just hewn out of the rocks, which is a great place to hide if militarily. And this is the open structure of the ancient settlements. This is a Roman amphitheater that's still there. Everything was just carved right out of the rock. And I want you to think providentially how important that is. They didn't make houses in Petra, uh, the Edomites, out of you know, sticks and wood or anything like that. They dug their dwellings in rocks. You see beforehand how God has prepared beforehand something. That, that place has been prepared thousands of years ago that, that stands in rock. It can't move. And so it's a great show of providence for the Jews. Okay, what's my point about all of this? Go back to the text. Israel will go here. 
And notice what God will do for her. It's one thing to be led out into the desert, but will he provide for them? Where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent, Satan. She's nourished for three and a half years there. God's going to protect her. God's going to take care of her. So the serpent spewed out of his mouth mouth like a, uh, like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Let me explain a few things here. This idea of the serpent spewed water out of his mouth and it's like a flood, that's Hebraic language for military invasion. It's a military invasion. Antichrist is on a military invasion. He attacks Jerusalem and then he goes down into Petra as he follows them to attack them and try to destroy them at this place. And that's why they use the Hebraic way is the flood came to take them. But notice this, the earth helped the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up, what? The flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. What happened? As they're going there, Antichrist pursues them out there into Petra. And they're surrounding Petra, trying to get at the entrance. And God provides a miraculous, what we call a terrestrial miracle. Just what happened Remember with Moses in Korah's rebellion. What happened in Korah's rebellion? Everyone who rebelled against Moses, the ground gave way and sucked them in, and they went to hell straight, alive, basically. The ground opened up and sucked them in and then closed up on them. All their belongings, everything they had, it just took them away from that period of time. Another thing will happen similar in Petra to Antichrist's armies. Not all of his armies, but those who sends out, they will get taken into hell physically by being sucked into the earth and it opening up and taking their lives. That's amazing. So God is prepared. If you go to the place, I will help you. Notice that he, he, they're nourished. You see that word nourished that, they're, that they're, they're taken care of? How will he take care of it? Well, I don't have time to unpack this. But if you look at Isaiah 41, 17 through 20, Isaiah 65, 8 through 16, what you find out is that God provides food and water, just as he did with the Exodus generation. There's nothing out there. So will, rock, will water come out of rocks again? Yes. Will manna fall? It's a good idea it will. Here's the problem with what I have sometimes. When I read texts like that, that he's going to provide like perhaps manna and stuff again, the first thought comes into my mind, and I shouldn't think this way, is it gluten-free? I, <laughs> that's how my life is now. I'm always, is that gluten-free? Is that gluten-free? And I'm thinking, would I do that? The Lord's breaking bread and doing the miraculous miracle and multiplying fish and loaves? I would first say, I don't know if I can eat this. Is this gluten-free? how stupid I am. That's my first filter. Is this gluten-free? I'm sure it would be if it's manna. I'm sure it wouldn't hurt me. Nonetheless, but can you imagine that God's going to reestablish Israel and provide the water and manna again? Yeah, it might happen again. He says, I'm going to do it for them. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed out water in his mouth after a flood. They might cause it. Okay, we got that. Um, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman because he can't get to her. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, wait a second. There's a, a key point in this. Wait a second. I thought the remnant of Israel runs to Petra. 
How come he goes to make war with the rest of her offspring? What offspring? I thought everyone went to Petra. Ah, you're on to something. Not all listened to Messiah and took off. Remember what he said. When you see the abomination of desolation, get out of Dodge. I need you to move. Some did and some don't. But the indication here is that we're dealing with believers who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Some believers thought they were smarter than Jesus and said, you know what? I'm just going to stay up here in Jerusalem. I know it's getting bad, but I don't want to run to Petra. I don't trust that a place of refuge has been out there. I'm going to stay right here in Jerusalem. It's a problem. It's a lack of faith. And they're not, it's believers, they're believers, Jewish believers, but they're lacking the faith that God has provided refuge. I'm going to come back to that because that is the application we're going to get at. I don't know what excuse they gave. I know it's 100 miles. And sometimes in the application of this, the place of refuge is difficult to get to because you know what it requires? Obedience. You just got to do it. You got to hump up and just do it and just lace your boots up, tie your boots on, and get after it, and go to the place of refuge, whatever that place of refuge is. Sometimes it's a physical location. Sometimes it's just getting your act straight. That's all. Or getting an attitude figured out. But whatever that place of refuge, God's saying, I'm going to protect you here. I'm not going to protect you anywhere else. I'm going to protect you here, right here. If you don't go, you don't get protected. Because while they're camped out in Jerusalem and refuse to go to Petra, guess what's happening to them? Guess what the men are experiencing right now? They're watching themselves be fired at upon by the Antichrist armies, perhaps dying. They're watching their women get raped, and they don't have any provision of food and water there. So they're going to have to probably try to survive for three and a half years under that kind of condition versus if they would have removed themselves and went to Petra, just like Jesus said, and stayed there, God's providing manna, providing water, and by the way, there is no military threat. He's protecting them. You see the difference. It is the key to the application in this. Now, if you're on my Wednesday night class and you go there, you already know the application of this, but this bears repeating. These are two sets of believers. One is obeying and being protected. The other one is a believer, but is unprotected because they simply won't obey. So you and I looking at both situations, which one would I choose? Well, I definitely want to go with the Petro people, man. That's where, where all the protection's at. Okay, but you're going to have to run 100 miles on foot. It's going to be hot, maybe. And it's going to be difficult to get there. But once you're there, great. Push through it. The ones in Jerusalem saying, I don't know about that. 100 miles, I'm just going to camp out right here. I'm good. No, you're not going to be good because they're going to rape your women. They're going to sell half of you into slavery if you stay there. In short term, it seems like the right solution. Short term. But in the end, you're going to pay dearly for this. And there's no food and water there, by the way. Which group do you want to be? The hard road that leads to reward or the shortcut that leads to pain? I don't know about you, but my, my life and your life probably is already difficult as it is. I don't need any more junk on me. It's already difficult as it is, but lack of obedience causes more junk to happen to you, causes more pain, causes more grief. And that's what we're seeing with these two groups. The key in all of this is obedience. Jesus is simply saying, my commands are not, not hard to understand. 
when you see the abomination of desolation, get out of Dodge. Just do it. Go to the wilderness and use all the clues to get to Petra. That simple? Yeah, just do it. Just do it. I promise you. Why don't we do it? Simple things like that. Because our stubborn hearts, our pride says, I know better. I see the situation around me. It's not going to get bad. Antichrist is not going to come and rape my wife. Yeah, there's no way. He was a nice guy. You're believing what you see in front of you. And that sometimes is not reality. You have to believe in the word. Notice, both groups are facing a problem. All Christians are facing problems. But it's how you and I deal with those problems that creates whether my life is going to be easier or harder, and I could complicate my life. Doesn't mean they're not saved. He will actually come back, and you'll see this, and rescue both groups. But guess who, which group gets rescued first? You got it. Petra gets rescued first. They're the priority. Because why? Obedience. Now, he'll make his way up to Jerusalem, and then he'll rescue the second group. But it's after he takes care of the priority. So when you look in the Proverbs, this is why it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. You know what that means in the Hebrew? If you trust in what he says, I'll make your life easier than the trouble you're having. I'll clear the path. It won't be so troublesome. You won't stumble. I'll clear the path for you. I'll make a way of refuge for you. But if you trust in your own self, your path is going to get very rocky. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.